A charismatic leader, a fantastical premise, a group of devoted followers, a shared vision. Get ready, it's time to talk about cults, part one. Welcome to You Totally Made That Up. This is a bi-weekly history podcast where we discuss the most bizarre, wildest, craziest stories from way back when. And the catch is we like the ones that have some sort of supernatural, paranormal, spooky, woo-woo elements to them, but they're all true, even if those parts are only true to the people who live them. We don't go for the lore says or the legend goes. We like dates and names and all the facts we can find. And my name is Nash. And my name is Tiff. We are your hosts. Please do keep listening after the stories to hear the outro. That's how you'll learn where to find us on social media, how to get in touch with us, and we love hearing from you. And something else we love is getting right into the reason why you're here, the stories. This round, we're talking about cults. And as you heard in the intro, we simply have to split it into two episodes because, who boy, the ones we've chosen each most definitely deserve one of their own. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. It would be a disservice if we tried to condense these into shorter stories. Yep. And I do want to mention real quick that we're doing this topic, as you heard in a recent episode, because Tiff had a cult encounter in college. We'll get to that. But of course, because it's just our luck, I saw, and you know, it's going to be maybe a couple of months by the time this goes out. But I had seen that I think two of the podcasts we follow also did cults. And I guess chalk that up to, you know, what's that term when people have the same idea? I want to say it's like multiple discovery, but there could be others. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> either. What you said. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, we also want to tell you that we've picked fun ones to tell you about. Not to say that we wouldn't cover more intense ones. I mean, we'll very likely revisit cults in the future. But you know us, we try to have some levity within whatever we tell you about. So we just don't want you to worry that you're about to fall down an abyss of abuse or mass suicide or things of that nature. We may in later episodes on cults because my stars, this area is just chock full of stories of absolutely unreal stuff. But that's not the case for these episodes. I mean, there's there's lines that are crossed. But again, this isn't some murder spree, annihilation heavy handed do you know what i'm saying you know what i'm saying tiff because you're the co-host and you're part of this no go on come on keep keep going i just i'm trying to i hope that i've made that clear to our lovely listeners that this isn't gonna be some dark cloud type of thing it's not completely free of darkness there's darkness to be sure but there's a healthy amount of humor in my opinion in my i don't know a ton a ton about yours but i know enough and i know for sure mine is laughable quite laughable on many many levels so to get us kicked off before tiff gets into her story because she's doing part one let's do a quick overview of what we mean when we use the word cult per merriam webster as far as the etymology it's french by way of latin the french cult spelled how you think with an e and from latin cultus meaning care and adoration, and also from colère, meaning to cultivate. 
The first known use of the word was in 1613, and it was in the context of formal religious veneration, so worship in general. The definitions are as follows. A religion regarded as unorthodox or spurious, and also its body of adherence. Great devotion to a person, idea, object, movement, or work. A system of religious beliefs and ritual. And in some variants, a system for the cure of disease based on dogma set forth by its promulgator. Okay, so what differentiates a cult from a religion? Or how are those leaders and followers different is maybe a better way of asking it. I have linked for you in show notes a fantastic article that goes into depth on this because it's not something that's maybe starkly evident for some. So check that out. It's from the University of Pennsylvania. And here's a couple things from that article that I think sum up the differences pretty well. Quote, the word cult originally designates a practice of religious veneration and the religious system based around such veneration. For example, the cult of Our Lady of Guadalupe, says Robin Clark, a linguistics professor in the School of Arts and Sciences. However, the word was co-opted in the first half of the 20th century by sociology and has come to denote a social group with socially deviant beliefs and practices, like a UFO cult. Further, quote, cult is a term that doesn't refer to religion at all, but is applied to a social movement. People have intuitive feelings about how the word cult should be used, even when an organization or movement meets the criteria of a new religion. Take, for example, Scientology and Mormonism. Both were new religious movements that have evolved into a general understanding or definition of a religion. However, according to Pew Research, non-Mormons in the U.S. are more likely to label Mormonism as a cult. And talking about that mention of UFO cults, that's not something that's overtly religious. I mean, there may be some subsets that think aliens are gods or whatever, but you get what I'm saying. My mind leaps more to it being based in conspiracy theories and the like. And a very recent example of a cult that's not per se religious, one that's more about philosophies, is the Nexium cult. And another example of philosophy-based groups that could be considered cults are, like Merriam-Webster mentioned, health cults, which has overlap in pseudoscience and perhaps some conspiracy elements in the sense of big pharma's out to get us, all that stuff. And I tell you, we kind of want to stay away from religion here on the podcast, but there are two, air quotes, popular religions that came about in modern times that I would be interested in tackling in a con artist themed episode, because there's ample evidence on the two I'm thinking of to show that the persons who got the ball rolling on them set out to create a following very purposefully, that there wasn't some delusion at play. They were very aware and lucid and were calculating and were, I mean, you know, let's call a spade a spade. They were charlatans. (laughs) You can probably guess the two that I'm talking about. (laughs) Actually, there were two that were mentioned in those quotes that I just went through. So there's the theme that there's some sort of dramatic void in logic and a deviance from social norms. And I would also add onto that illegal activity in some cases, up to and including murder. I say the mentality of those types of cult leaders and members would be on the Venn diagram psychology-wise with the whole being at risk of harming oneself or others. That's a big line in the sand. Does a given group blend into society for the most part, like in the sense of believe what you want to as long as you're not causing harm? And like I say, we'll revisit cults again, I have no doubt. But again, don't worry. For these episodes, we found some that had humorous elements to them, I swear. 
And I cannot stress enough how much you need to listen to part two, because for whatever reason on our two-parters, the second part tends to have a striking decline in listens, and I cannot for the life of me figure out why. But I'm telling you, I'm not overselling part two. It is something else. But for now, we must get into part one, because you have to hear this story. Tiff, take it away. All right. Now, before I start digging in, I just want to go ahead and put up, you know, one of those parental warnings that there's some sexual content here. And, you know, I'm not going to be describing anything graphic, but if you don't want to answer questions about some of these topics, you may want to be aware of who is listening along with you. Yeah, tiny humans, and I'm going to go ahead and say that for mine as well. Tiny humans need not apply on these. (laughs) Yeah. So. Give you a moment to gather yourself or put in your headphones, whatever you need to do. A few moments later. So we're right at the beginning of the 20th century. Specifically, we're in Oregon. And I pre-apologize for the times I'm going to slip and pronounce that wrong because we have a town here in Wisconsin. It's pronounced Oregon. Oh. And I just know it's, (laughs) I know it's going to happen. Anyways, (laughs) that has nothing to do with it. We're in the state. Well, listen, they know by now. And if they don't already, the one of our most recent episodes was full of a mispronunciation <laughs> discussion. And so <laughs> I frankly, you should expect nothing less, guys. Just just know that I'm aware and I'm sorry. OK, I'm trying my best. I'm Midwestern. OK, so my story starts with the Salvation Army. And in case you don't know, the Salvation Army was created in 1865 by William Booth as a breakaway sect of the traditional church. Their mission was to go out and preach the gospel directly to people. The preachers were soldiers of Christ. These evangelists were trying to help the destitute, the drunk, the prostitutes, and so that's why they were on the street corners. These preachers were really looked down upon. I mean, people were spitting on them, throwing rotten food at them, and a big part of how they operated was by soliciting donations. So, you know, people would throw this nasty food at them. They'd be like, oh, thank you. They had to be grateful for everything that was given to them. They got the name Salvation Army when Booth read a printer's proof of the 1878 Christian Mission Annual Report, and he noticed the statement, the Christian Mission is a volunteer army. He crossed out the words volunteer army, and he wrote in Salvation Army. From that point forward, converts were soldiers of Christ, and then they were considered Salvationists. And this launched throughout the British Isles. And then they ended up converting like 250,000 Christians between the years 1881 and 1885. From there, it spread rapidly in America, Canada, Australia, France, Switzerland, India, South Africa, Iceland, and Germany. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of say Salvation Army is almost a gateway drug for the people in my story, starting with our cult leader. This man was Franz Edmund Creffield. He was born possibly about 1873. That's not 100% certain. But we do know that he's not really a remarkable person. He stood about five foot six. He had blue eyes. He had blonde hair, kind of a slight figure. He liked his job with the Salvation Army. He didn't love it. He wasn't really too fond of collecting the donations about some of the minutiae of how they operated. So in 1901, he resigns because he's feeling less than thrilled with them. Plus, he's got the Holy Ghost talking to him. And the Holy Ghost told him to leave the Salvation Army because its people are not entirely of God. So he leaves them. He goes and joins up with the Pentecostal Mission and Training School. Now, this group was strongly against the more lenient churches and preachings of the day. 
There was no card playing, no dancing, no science. The Pentecostal church is more about the direct contact with God's word, with biblical authority, and the Holy Spirit, which enables one to live a spirit-filled and empowered life. There's lots of speaking in tongues, shaking uncontrollably, you know, full of the spirit, lots of intense kind of worship. And he is in it. The Holy Spirit is talking to him. It's telling him that he's God's elect and he needs to go to Corvallis. Now, this is going to be the main setting for our story. It's Corvallis, Oregon. It's located between Eugene and Portland. And when you look it up now, it says that it's known for Oregon State University and the Beavers. But about a hundred... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm picturing... Yeah, beavers aside, that no, no, that's too easy. Yeah. I'm not okay. gonna make a joke okay. there. See, you thought I was, and I'm not. I'm, I'm picturing Jesus Christ coming down on a cloud and going, "My son, you must go to Corvallis, <laughs> <laughs> the new Holy Land, Corvallis." <laughs> well, when you hear about it, you're gonna see why. Okay. All right. So it's a small town, about three thousand people, but it was quote. See, this is probably why the Eden at the end of the Oregon Trail. And it really does sound lovely. I mean, barns, orchards, shade trees all over town. There's small gardens on every property. They've got nine churches, three saloons, a variety of shops, a barber, an opera house. There's lots of organizations and fraternal orders, one of which even allowed female members. So, hey, they've got a lot going on there. It's lovely. It's quaint. They've got two newspapers. And they report on pretty much anything that they can find. Literally anything that they could write a story on. There's a section in the Corvallis Times called Local Lore, News of Corvallis and Vicinity Told in Brief, The Comings and Goings of People, Social Gossip, Personal Mention, and Other Items of Public Interest. Already not told in brief. That's like the longest headline. (laughs) I was about to say, but I love that they just own it, that they're like, we're totally going to gossip about your ass. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, here's one of the stories that was published. Clarence Starr returned home Tuesday from Seaside, Oregon, where he had been employed for several months in a sawmill. He relates an amusing story at the expense of the little pumpkin vine railroad that runs from Warrington to Seaside. While en route home, traveling over this line, the train slowed down. That is, it went slower than usual, and the whistle was repeatedly blown in vain efforts to shoo a cow off the track. It seemed impossible to make her give the right of way, and a wearied passenger finally agreed to give her a start, which he did. She seemed quite alarmed at the demonstrations of the passenger, and, throwing her tail to the breeze, continued her way on the track at her liveliest gait. The passenger climbed back onto the whole train, and the engine was turned loose to make up for the time lost. After about half an hour's run, the train again slowed down, and the shrill whistle resounded along the coast. The passenger inquired what was the matter now. He was answered by the conductor who stated that they had caught up with the cow. There's your news. So a hopping place. Uh Got it. (laughs) Yeah. Full of excitement. So much excitement. They've got articles about going for rides in automobiles, about store clerks being frightened by rats while they're unpacking shipments. Uh, Why do I get the feeling, though, that you're setting us up for little Corvallis (laughs) getting um... a little drama, maybe? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, I might be, because, I mean, this place just sounds postcard perfect. I want to go there. Maybe not after Edmund Cruffield arrives, though. He arrives in 1902. He's full of the Holy Spirit and confidence, and he gets right down to business. 
the first folks that he gets in touch with are the local members of the Salvation Army. Because for him, it's like a built-in audience. He knows the drill. He knows how they operate. But he's kind of reeling them in saying, I've got a little bit more info. I've got a few other details that I can tell you from God. And he doesn't immediately start with, join my cult. It's very, very subtle. He kind of starts with preaching the word as they're familiar with it, and they start to go along. And then slowly, very, very slowly, he starts trickling in little changes here and there. So he starts holding these services, and he goes on and on about the messages that he has from God. They cannot be explained or described. It can only be experienced. He said that anyone could experience the power of receiving messages from God. He said that when people became worthy of this personal communication, that their names would be inscribed on a holy roll in heaven. But they had to act fast. There was only a limited number of space on the holy roll. Now, of course, some people don't buy it. But those who are, are totally in it to win it. They're like, I gotta get my name on that list. It has to happen. So he starts doing these services with like hours of kind of call and answer saying, God have mercy. And then everyone says, God have mercy. Then he says, God will have victory tonight. And everyone says, God will have victory tonight. And it starts going on and on and on until they're like screaming, you know, God have mercy. and God will have victory tonight. I mean, it's an hour, it's two hours. And then we're getting up into double digit length services, you know, 12 hours, even going up to 24 hours that he's holding these services, making these people just scream and pray. So he would say, When you get God's best, you become unmanageable, irresistible. You're not afraid of clay faces anymore. Fear of man is burned out, and all you see is the soul plunging into an everlasting, burning, seething hell, and your cry becomes holiness or hell. He's yelling at these people, be ye holy. And he starts getting them into this frenzy. He starts telling them, you need to start rolling around. You need to pound on the floors. You need to make sure that God hears you. You need to make sure... That you're putting everything you've got into these prayers so that God knows that you believe. Heaven's really far away and our Lord and Savior is hard of hearing. So you got to really bring it. Bring it. You do. And he, he knows because he is God's elect. He is the messenger. And all of these believers now are God's anointed. And so what made them noticeable was the way that they worshipped. You know, the, the Pentecostal gatherings that could be loud, very energetic. And he takes it a few steps further with these long, long, long sessions, screaming, banging their head on the floor, rolling around, beating their hands, which I imagine after hours and hours of that, yeah, you're going to hear God. You're going to hear something. So I would probably stop and be like, yep, yep, I'm hearing it. I'm hearing all of that. I, I have to go now. Yeah. Yeah. You bang your head hard enough. You will see Jesus. 100%. 100%. Yeah. But these people, they go on with it. And this goes on for a few months until finally the rest of the town is kind of like, you know what? You guys are a little bit too loud, a little bit too crazy. And you guys, the holy rollers, as they're called, you guys can't hold your services within city limits anymore. (laughs) You waking up kids, you scaring dogs. (laughs) We got cows running across railroad tracks in groups now. Mm Mm-hmm. So Edmund's like, all right, we're going to go over to an island. And there's this island that's about three miles or so out of town. He brings the congregation there. And it sounds like it would be like a really fun retreat, you know, because they're going to be camping. They're going to be praying. It's going to be really awesome. But in reality, not so much. First, Edmund breaks the news that now he's Joshua. And a quick note from biblical lore, 
God appointed Joshua to succeed Moses as leader of the Israelites, along with giving him a blessing of invincibility during his lifetime. So, yeah, he says he's Joshua, but I'm just going to go ahead and keep calling him Edmund, because that's stupid. Please do, yes. Okay, all right. And this island, it's uninhabited. It's really just used for lumber, for harvesting hops. There's a peach orchard, but there's really nothing else on there. There's no structures, there's no houses. So they really are camping on this island. And they are practicing this very ultra-literal interpretation of the Bible. And one of the big things that Edmund starts preaching is personal purity. This is his favorite topic once they're on this island. And he would say things like, are you still in bondage to your carnal nature? Is the old man still living in your heart? Do not be discouraged. God wants to use you, to cleanse you, to purge you from your inbred sin, baptize you with fire, and enable you to come up to his holy commandment and live a holy life. How does he perform this cleansing? Well, he's got a ceremony with every woman in the flock that would endow him with the grace of love. And it's performed privately in his tent where he and the woman would retire to engage in a long prayer service. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. At the end of the service, he would tell the woman to put her arms around his neck and kiss him. And if a woman refused, he immediately denounced her and declared she was carnal and of the devil. He's got his definition of carnal reversed, it sounds like to me. Yeah, I think he's very, very specific with where this carnal... (laughs) (laughs) Like, y'all can't do it with each other, but Mm -hmm. I want you to come into my tent so I can lay the pipe. (laughs) And that's not carnal. That's of Christ. Maybe. Maybe. Okay, I'm judging. You're right. I'm judging. It was probably all very innocent. Uh Uh-huh. We'll see. So, you know, they're hanging out on this island, suffering because it's summer and they have no house. And they're only eating peaches because they don't have any supplies with them. And it's awful. And now it's. <laughs> and they're only eating peaches. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny to me. That is. So... It's ridiculous. I mean, this guy is just so like, God will provide. But really, really? I don't know if he's just going to provide all of this shit for you. He's. And speaking of shit, that's all you're going to do if peaches is the only thing in your diet. So maybe it's a good thing the island's uninhabited. It will. Hmm? But now it's turning to fall. Summer's ending. The weather is not quite as pleasant for island life. So they're like, all right, I guess we can't really stay on this island. On top of all that, we don't really have a place to worship. But like he said, God provides. But it wasn't really God. It was a gentleman named Orlando Victor Hurt. From now on, we're going to call him O.V. because that's how everyone refers to him and it just sounds cooler. Now, O.V. was not a member of God's Anointed, but his wife Sarah and two daughters, Maud and May, were. So let me just take a moment. I'm going to introduce you to a few members of the Holy Rollers. Sarah was O.V.'s wife. They had children Frank, May, and Maud. And then they also adopted children when their children became grown because they just still felt like they had so much love to give. Now, Maud was 23 when this all started. She was described as very expressive. She had jet black hair. and She had very, very deep blue eyes. Very comely, but she was also very intelligent. She was described as very peculiar, but they believe that that may have been because as a child, she had severe typhoid and scarlet fevers. 
And that kind of ended up making her a little, I don't know how to describe it. I don't want to say odd, but I guess she's just kind of one of those people that you're like, are you staring at me and judging me? Or are you just kind of... Right, right. She also was very, very religious. They said that she studied religions whenever she was introduced to something new. Even by the age of eight, she was a child wonder at religious work. She was very energetic at revival meetings, that she would take the teachings of Christianity to heart, and she tried to live a very, very Christian life. When she was 14, she joined the Salvation Army because she believed it would give her more opportunities to perform good works. But then after meeting Edmund, she left the army because it was teaching the Bible in a narrow manner, and she didn't like the methods for collecting donations. There was also May, his other daughter. She was 16. She also was involved in the Salvation Army. There was Molly Sandell. She was one of the first of the followers of Edmund to have left the Salvation Army. Let's see. There was her sister Olive, who was a Salvation Army soldier who also came to the island. And Molly's fiance, Frank Hurt, who I had mentioned before, was one of Ovi's children. There was Donna Starr, her husband, Burgess, who also was Sarah Hurt's brother. There was Esther Mitchell, who was Donna Starr's youngest sister. When this all started, Esther was 15. They said that she was considered to be gentle and kind, but she always had kind of a faraway look in her eyes, a dreamy, absorbed expression. Another couple of people on the island were Sarah Hartley and her mother, Cora Hartley. There was also Rose Seeley, Addie Bray, and a few others. So again, if you're keeping tabs, it's a pretty solid congregation of women. As I was saying, they needed to get off the island. Sarah offers up her family home, which just happens to sit outside of the city limits, and it becomes their new communal home for the Holy Rollers. Now, some of Edmund's rules, again, he was very, very strict. He decided that men, women, children were all going to share a room, and they were all going to sleep together on the floor because beds were just not welcome. Basically, worldly possessions were not welcome. Even candlelight, because you only needed the light of day. This guy was just full of crap. Aside from the noise, there are the issues with the group, specifically with how strict he was. So to get onto the holy roll in heaven, of course, you needed to live the holiest way. And this fucker knows all the tips. He even knows the best foods for you to eat. So if you want to eat some holy food, he's got to sanctify it, which just basically means he's got to put his hands on it. So that everybody knows that this is the good stuff. Wait. So So he was handling everybody's food? Yeah. Oh, sanctified. Sanctified. Not sanctified. Don't touch that. And for periods of time, he would sanctify nothing but just bread and water. What about the peaches? Okay. Well, no, we're out of season now. Okay. Got it. Got it. I'm pretty sure it was just him testing, you know, seeing how far he could push them. Absolutely. And he would say that he is doing this so that they would know hunger. And then, you know, that also goes along with the sleeping on the floor and not having a bed and not having, you pretty much also gave up your clothes. These people are just wearing robes, essentially. And it was so that they would know cold. Now, married couples did join up together initially. And after a few months of this, some of these guys got tired of it. (laughs) Some of the fiancés, they broke the engagements. Some of the husbands were like, oh, yeah, 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 I'll go to the island. That'll be all right. We'll, We'll check this out as a married couple. But after all these rules and all these things are going on, they're like, I don't want this, but my wife is bored. Uh, You know, I guess she's just doing this for fun. One of the people who didn't last very long was Burgess Starr. And so then a lot of those remaining were women. They were married. They were single. They were teenagers. They were middle-aged. He also establishes these rules about who they're allowed to communicate with. 
If someone is not one of God's anointed, if they refuse to accept the spirit, then they're not allowed to have any dealings with them. They considered them the infidels, even if those infidels were members of their own families. So there they are, living in this house that Sarah offered up with her husband, Ovi. So this guy's totally a true believer, right? No. <laughs> no, this... Oh gosh, I've got feelings for OV. Okay, I love him. I love him so much. First, what he deals with. His wife and daughters invite this guy into their home. He's having these people show up. They're rolling around. They're screaming for 24 fucking hours at a time. They're sleeping on his floors, but he doesn't convert to this. And he lives in this house. OV gets up and he goes to work every day. He hears all the people in town making fun of him and his family. And then he goes home to a house full of people screaming. Not only that, there's no exception just because he lives there and owns this house. Oh no, he's still an infidel. And he was shunned and they even called him Black Devil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's Black Devil in his own house. And he was constantly being warned by these people that God was going to smite him because he wasn't a true believer. Poor O.V., so, like, he'd just be going to the bathroom or something, there'd be, like, black devil. <laughs> yeah. And remember, I mean, this is his wife and three of his kids. And in this house, they also have these adopted kids. So it's like, oh, God. So, and I don't blame him. After a couple of months, he does finally give in. He ends up quitting his job, gets rid of his clothes. He puts on the robe like everybody else. And it's really just because he loves his wife and his children so much and he wants to be a part of their lives. If you need a protagonist, if you need a good guy for the story, it's O.V. All right, I'm just putting that out there so you guys know ahead of time. It's Wednesday, October 28th, when he finally gives in. He says he's been living in sin and he's going to devote himself to the work of God. And they put up signs on their porch and on their door. It says, positively, no admittance, except on God's business. So Edmund is all, whoo, hallelujah, it is time for fall cleaning. And this is not like a holy roller thing. This was pretty much a town tradition. They did kind of a spring and fall cleaning. There was almost like a town rummage, you know. But Edmund, this guy's got to do everything amped up, at least. He's cranked up to 11 at all times. So he decides it's time to really clean house. Possessions, we don't need them. So let's just have a big ass bonfire. So they take all the furniture, they take clothing, there's bicycles, there's shrubbery, photos, instruments, even the wooden sidewalks from outside of the house. If it's something from the carnal hands of the non-believers, they gotta destroy it. Now, thankfully, some family members managed to stop the believers from taking everything out of their homes, but plenty was gone. I mean, there's even a dog and a cat? And there were rumors that the adopted toddler of Sarah and Ovi was tossed into the fire as a holy sacrifice. No, no way. You know, before this, nothing was too worrisome to the authorities. But this is what finally instigates some investigating. They have to know if there's human sacrifice going on in this house. So they do go in and they're walking along. There's people on the floor and they're mid-prayer and, you know, half undressed and whatever. They're rolling. They're They're rolling. rolling. They're doing their thing. Now, the child, Martha, she was found to be alive. But the dog and the cat? Yeah, that did actually happen. Oh, no. I'm just going to go ahead and quote here. We killed a dog and a cat, I admit. 
but did so because we wanted to get rid of them and failed. Were they sacrifices? No, God's anointed assured the sheriff. We have no laws except the Bible. You find nothing like that in the Bible. The dog that was killed was an impertinent little canine on which sentence of death had been pronounced many times before and which ought to have been carried out. The ground was hard and dry and it was difficult to bury the remains, so we threw them on a bonfire. It was purely for sanitary reasons. Oh, oh, well, in that case. (laughs) Yeah. In that case, now we're sanitary, by the way. Now we're sanitary. Oh, but can I touch your roast beef sandwich? Let me. (laughs) Roast beef. Oh, my God. If only they were allowed to eat roast beef. So the sheriff rightfully is like, I still have a bad feeling about this. This just isn't sitting right. So he brings Edmund in to test his sanity. They ask him a whole bunch of questions about his faith, including would he kill someone if God commanded it? And Edmund's like, yeah, I would, but God's not likely to give me that, so it's okay. He's a good dude. At the end of it all, they decide that he's not the sanest person, but he's also not crazy enough to be locked up in the asylum, so they have to let him go. And of course, this tiny little town that doesn't have a whole lot going on that's newsworthy is suddenly known internationally, and it's not known in a good way, you know, and the townsfolk are getting pissed off. So a crowd actually goes to the home after Edmund has returned, and they want to have some words. They need to know what's going on. They need to double check on the human sacrifice, and they want to know why they're so loud all the time. So this crowd starts banging on the doors. They actually end up breaking the windows, throwing rocks through them. They're shouting, they're yelling, they're trying to get these people to come out for hours, but no one does. And dear O.V., he goes the next day to the sheriff, and he demands protection for his home. But in the meantime, Edmund skips town, and he kind of lets the dust settle before returning, and again, he's getting some more messages from God. Now the timeline gets a little weird here. O.V. leaves the house to go on a trip to Portland with an associate, and while there, he's probably getting some food and some fucking sleep, and he has a realization that he would have nothing to do with it as his religion was nothing more than hysterical sentiment, talking about Edmund and the Holy Rollers. So O.V. goes back home and he tells him to get out, which he does, Edmund leaves, But so does Ovi's son, Frank. They don't get very far because it's not really great to travel in the winter. And after a little while, they end up heading back to Corvallis. And Frank Hurt finds a rental house. And they take up services again and they start living there. Not long after, on January 4th, 1904, a group of about 20 men from town had reached their limit. There was finally some proof of indecency. And that night, there was a good old-fashioned tar and feathering. (laughs) Yes. Have you ever wondered how to make a shrunken head? Or why there was a cat floating up in space in 1963? Or just what it takes for a monkey to become an astronaut? Did you know that a snarky swearing parrot ruined Andrew Jackson's funeral? And that a crew of 28 explorers drifted lost on the ice floes of Antarctica for two years during World War I? And why does fruitcake exist? If you want to excavate through the deepest primordial interiors of the human experience, reach back into time and find the stories that connect all of us to a place where real history is woven with storytelling that brings the past back to life. Then come visit the History Cache podcast for some exhaustively researched historical narrative that just might inspire you to make your own history. That's Cache spelled C-A-C-H-E. It's history better than fiction. A podcast crafted for the most curious of minds. 
Available wherever you listen to podcasts. So what was it that finally pushed them to the limit? Well, first, Edmund decided that it was time to marry. And his bride of choice was 16-year-old Esther Mitchell. And that information got spread very quickly. And while she was all about it, her family is not into it. She has another sister that actually picked her up, took her to Portland, and then committed her to the Boys and Girls Aid Society, which was an institute for homeless and abused children. And she fought and she screamed and she ended up being described as bright, but deranged. (laughs) Bright, but deranged. (laughs) Now, the other check that was against Edmund was when some people saw the Holy Rollers out on that freaking island again. And this time it was Edmund surrounded by, quote, a bevy of women. And they were naked. (laughs) So now remember, a lot of these women in this group were still married. And the others were fine young ladies who were either engaged or single. So what are they doing naked with Edmund on this island? You know, how dare he tarnish these women? So this group is like, fuck the sheriff. And whoever else is going to try and get up in our business, we are going to do something about this guy. At this point, there's four remaining male members of the Holy Rollers. They are gathered from the home. And they, they are paraded right down the main street. This group is not hiding from anybody. This is not a secret. They take them to a bridge. They strip them naked. Two of the men had tar and feather just on their heads. It was kind of, you know, you guys aren't the worst offenders. This is just a warning. But Creffield, he ends up getting two layers of tar and enough feathers to, quote, make the biggest bird known turn blue with envy. But, oh boy. This mob, this group, they didn't even know the full extent of what was actually going on. And if they had, I imagine that tar and feathers would just have been the starting point for his torture. He says, holy people need not wear clothing. And he undresses, exposing how he was, quote, most wonderfully endowed by Mother Nature, which is not an exaggeration or bragging. It's noted several times within the book that I read by a few witnesses that he was indeed wonderfully endowed. They took a yardstick to measure it, and Lord Horsecock over there measured in at 13 inches. Oh, oh, oh. Well, that answers that question. (laughs) That that answers a whole lot of questions, because I will confess, I was starting to gather pictures for show notes, and listen, he ain't much to look at. He's actually got this really weird look in his eye, like that kind of Charles Manson look in his eye. So this, we've we've solved a bit of a mystery here. <laughs> and considering he's only like five foot six. Right. That's a tripod. That's a tripod. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> this guy, I, I mean, he could have had a brothel and not gone through all the bullshit and the eating peaches. He was. Yeah. How were his peaches? <laughs> we've got the scoop <laughs> on, <laughs> on his cock-a-doodle-doo. But, uh, wow. Yeah. He's telling these people that clothing was intended to cover up sin and shame. And if the heart was made pure, there was no sin. Therefore, there should be no shame. So then... I'm just... Hang on. I've got to go back. These guys are getting ready to tar and feather him. And they, they're like, stop everything. And they're like, Gary, Gary, go run. Run, go get a yardstick. Oh, no. Run, go get a ruler, Gary. And Gary's like, uh-uh. Okay, okay. And then somebody goes, nah, nah, you need a yardstick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. That's what I was thinking, too, when they were like, oh, they needed a yardstick. And I was like, holy shit, they did. <laughs> 
Just an FYI for our non-US listeners, 13 inches is 33.02 centimeters. Jesus Christ. So congratulations, Edmund. That's the only thing you've got going for you, I think. He's telling people that they got to be naked because they're without sin. They're without shame. And they're doing these prayer sessions and he's making claims that he's going to purify them of their sins. And after hours and hours of this, one of the women tells him that she's hearing messages because, you know, of course she is. And she believes that he can cleanse her. She says, I want to give up all in service to you. (laughs) I want to make a living sacrifice to you. I want to be put on an altar by you. (laughs) She wants to be put on something. (laughs) (laughs) I want to fully give myself up to your bidding. She wants to follow him wherever he would lead her. His bidding? Is that what we're calling it? Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Edmund's like, yep, that's totally right. That's definitely the message that God wanted you to hear, which I knew the whole time, but I needed to know that you knew it, you know? So he says that that's why he was sent to them, that Christ would come as he did before, a babe born of a virgin. But he didn't know which woman was to be the mother of the second Christ. He knew it was going to be one of these holy ones. And now they're all known as the Brides of Christ. So they ask him, well, which one of us is it? And Edmund's pretty much like, uh, any? All? I don't know for sure. I'm not going to know for sure until I've been with all of you. I was about to say, he's going to have to give him a test run and see what Jesus says. Exactly. That's definitely how it goes. And what about the married women? They're not virgins. You know, they've got kids. I mean, Sarah is there in this group with her kids, but it's cool. He's just got to purify them and they're all good. He's got that direct line to re-virginize whoever. So God told him that he, Joshua, remember he's going by Joshua at this point, was to take on this role as the new Joseph. And as the new Joseph, he was going to play a more active role than the first Joseph had played. (laughs) (laughs) A more active role? (laughs) And that the new Mary would be purified and be ready to be mother of the second Christ only after she had made love to him, Joshua. And he assures them this free love, it's not partaking in the quality of lust because it's the will of God. This is what God wants. Commence the orgies. And this is what's going down Christmas season of 1903. Quote, mothers were debauched in the presence of their daughters and daughters were debauched in the presence of their mothers. And after all had been debauched, purified, Joshua instructed the women and girls to submit themselves to the lust of other men. The other men in the flock, which included Frank Hurt, Charles Brooks, Samson Levins, and Lee Campbell. Now let's just have a refresher on some of the intermingling in this group. Sarah Hurt is there with three of her children, which means that she watches her daughters bone Creffield. And then she does. And this is all while her son watches his sisters do this, and then his mom. Plus, there's cousins, and (laughs) it's just lots of yuck. So now, after Joshua has made love to all the women in his flock, God finally reveals to him who the new Mary is going to be. Esther is institutionalized, so he decides he's going to marry the first runner-up, and that is Maud Hurt. And at this point, he needs to clarify that he is not God himself. God is the head of their church, but Edmund is just the visible head, and Maud is their spiritual mother, and that Esther has found favor with God, she's a saint, 
and now she is their church's spiritual god. Quite the holy trinity they've got going on there. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, if you love the drama, that mob that was doing the tarring and feathering did not know about all of this. So he just gets tarred up, he gets covered in the feathers, and he's warned. They're like, you gotta get the hell out of town. But Edmund is stubborn, and he goes back to the home. The Brides of Christ spend the night cleaning him off, and then the next morning, he and Maud go to get married. After the ceremony, Edmund announces that criminal methods are not going to drive him away from God's work, and he's going to return to Corvallis. And for the first time, O.V. publicly denounces Edmund. He says the apostle has not only the wrath of the community to contend with if he returns, but also that of Mr. Hurt. So a few people claim that they see Frank in a buggy with two women, and when the mob returns to the house to try to get a hold of Edmund, they only find his worshippers. No one knows where he went, and the families try to gather up their loved ones and take them back home. As a courtesy to Ovi, the mob lets Frank Hurt go after he promises not to live the Holy Roller life anymore. And Maud moves back in with her father. She has, quote, serious talks with him and decides, oh, yep, yep, she's done with Edmund, too. Edmund has not gone away completely. He just relocated to Portland. And he finds out while he's there that he's now Joshua the Second Savior and that they have a mission to spread the word of their church all around the world. Now, the problem with his plan comes in the form of Burgess Starr. He had at one point been on the island. His sister is Sarah Hurt, and his wife is Donna Starr. He files a complaint with the district attorney in Portland. He alleges that there have been adulterous relations between Edmund and his wife, and she, unknowingly, just because she's following what her husband tells her to do, signs an affidavit affirming this, and a warrant ends up being issued for the arrest of Edmund. But I mean, she had been, right? So it it wasn't a lie. It wasn't a lie, but it was more coerced, and she didn't know what she was signing. Yeah, true. But I just, okay. I just wanted to be clear that that old Donna Starr, uh... Oh, yeah, yeah. She was involved in that orgy. She was there, for sure. Gotcha, gotcha. And there's a newspaper quote that I just love. It says, the details of the case of this low-lived gospel-imitating rascal are revolting in the extreme. In fact, the penitentiary is too good for a varmint of this caliber, and the worst prisoner there would be degraded by having to associate with him. Sick burn. Beautiful. Oh my god. Beautiful. And I love that, again, they still don't know at this point the extent of everything that he did. But Edmund, he is out of there. He escapes arrest in Portland and in Corvallis and everywhere in between. This guy's just gone. When two weeks had gone by and there was no sign of him, the Daily Journal posted on April 1st, there's no doubt that the holy rollerism in Corvallis has ended. And oh man, they were so wrong. So, so very wrong. The remaining anointed brides of Christ, or whatever you want to call them, holy rollers, they're still gathering. They're still rolling around on the floor in prayer. At the command of the Lord, they stopped eating meat and cooked food because cooked food was sinful. Fire was not brought into the world by the creator. It is the invention of man. So it's cool for bonfires and burning dogs and cats, (laughs) but you're not allowed to cook with it. All right. Now, Maud, she is back at her parents' home and she's just starting to do crazy things. They can't make sense of anything that she's got going on in her head. She's saying that she's receiving messages from the Lord. She is not going to call her dad father. She's going to call him that old man hurt. And, and did they, I missed it, possibly. Were they able to get married, her and Edmund? Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, that's what I thought, that they went through with that. Okay. Yeah. So Maud is turning pictures around on the wall because the Lord told her to do that. Because pictures partook in vanity of the world. She would run into crowded rooms. She would kneel down and start praying for the salvation of people who were there. She would fast for days at a time. And she would refuse to eat in her father's presence. So the Holy Rollers are back in town. They're making people upset with how they're acting. And this is all without Edmund even being present to lead them. Though many didn't believe that the Holy Rollers were actually crazy, they all pretty much agreed that to get them to stop, they needed to physically separate them. And so a lot of them were sent away to asylums. Even Sarah Hurt was committed. And as she was being taken away, she fought, she tore off her clothes. Her husband, Ovi, tried to cover her modesty, tried to put long johns on her, but... I feel so badly for Ovi. I've just... God love him. Oh, Nash, just you wait. Oh, God, this guy. So he's trying to cover her up, but he doesn't get them past her neck before she's hauled out of the house screaming, I hate you, but I love Creffield. Edmund has been on the run for months. His followers are scattered. They're institutionalized. He's still missing. And it's not until July 29th of 1904 that he's discovered by absolute pure dumb luck. As I had mentioned, Ovi and Sarah had adopted some other children. And on that particular day, their 14-year-old son, Roy, was digging around under the house for worms so that he could use them for fishing bait. And quote, there are always a lot of corks under the house, and I crawled under there to look for them. After I got a considerable distance under the house, I noticed something white back in the northeast corner. No. Oh, yeah. The thing looked like a big pillow, but it was so dark that I just could not tell what it was. It was a big pillow with a big dick. (laughs) (laughs) So I went around the corner, and with a stick, I pushed a piece of cement out of the foundation. When I did that, a voice from under the house spoke to me in broken English, saying something I could not understand. I made up my mind at once that the voice was that of Creffield. I had heard it lots of times, and after he spoke to me, I was sure. So he goes and gets O.V., and O.V. comes out and shouts for him to come out. He responds that he's too weak to move. So O.V. says, I told him I would come under and move him in a way that he would not like if he did not crawl out. That's right, O.V., you get him, get him. Hell yeah. Edmund crawls out from under the building, and he was, quote, the most frightful-looking human I ever beheld. His white hair stood out from his head in all directions, as did his long beard, and they were both filled with dirt. His body was nude, his whole person filthy. I had to grip my teeth to keep off of him, but what could a man do? But if a dirty, sick dog came and crouched at your feet, you could not kick it, and I could not kick him. He was Gollum. (laughs) He was Gollum. (laughs) Hobbitses. Hobbitses. <laughs> right? I'm thinking like a mixture between like Gollum and like Saddam Hussein when he got pulled out of that hole. It's just, and that was under his house. This is almost like one of our, our other episode with the Batman. Yeah. Was there a bucket too under the house? <laughs> <laughs> well, they ended up looking at the space that he had lived in and it was only about six feet long. It was 18 inches deep, and it was two and a half feet wide. So his dick took up most of the room. Right. Right. (laughs) I'm not letting that go, Tiff. I'm not letting it go. You should not. I I feel like that's just one of those neon signs just going on the whole time. (laughs) That's okay. So OV, OV is like, I just want peace. I'm going to let the law take its course. These are good people. 
These good are people. Le- yeah, legit. They're good people. Edmund, on the other hand, he gets out of this hole. He's finally found under this house. Straightens up. He rolls his eyes. He stretches a little bit. And he goes, I am Elijah. <laughs> he has not given this up. Now, once the discovery of him underneath their house goes public, there's a lot of stuff that was weird in the past few months that suddenly makes sense. Like why Sarah was so angry about leaving and being taken out of the house because she had been feeding him. Neighbors had been seeing people crouching near the house and they assumed that they were picking flowers, but actually they had been feeding him and getting messages back and forth. And then there was, of course, Maud who had been hearing messages. It was all because Edmund was still underneath the house and talking to them through the floors. So Edmund's arrested, and this time he's deemed demented by the doctors. He's brought to trial, and he pleads not guilty to the charges of adultery. And when he's there, I mean, he's too weak to even sit up. He can barely speak. But he decides that he's going to defend himself because God will plead my case. I need no lawyer. The judge, however, responds to him saying, You had better secure someone on earth to defend you. I'm afraid I can't hear God. Oh, nice. (laughs) I love it. So his trial starts on September 16th, and it's a closed court because of the indecent testimonies of those involved. There are five witnesses that are called, including Donna Starr, and she admits to adultery. Two claim to have witnessed them being together, and another man admits that his wife and daughter were part of the group. Now, what about the orgies? Where does this all come out? Well, not in this instance, because they didn't want to shame the victims even more than they already had, especially considering that three of them were 16-year-old girls. So they kept the stories of the orgies out of this trial. And while Edmund had been hiding underneath the Hertz house, he had gone on purifying. Through the floorboards? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, he had the equipment, so. (laughs) Here, this will explain it. Dear O.V. again, quote, There were prayer services and purification services almost daily. When I was away at work, he would come out from under the floor and hold his orgies in my home. He made love to all of the women of the flock, even May, who was 16. The only thing that kept him from adding this for the prosecution's case was that he didn't want the publicity that would be detrimental to his daughter thereafter. Again, St. O.V. So the trial goes on. They determine that Edmund is straight up crazy. It only takes the jury 20 minutes to read a verdict. He's found guilty. They ask if he's got anything to say before his sentence is pronounced, and he says nothing. So then the judge sentences him to two years in the state penitentiary, and he says, God bless you. Glory to Jesus. Glory to God. This fucker only serves 17 months. He is released on December 13th, 1905, and he's let out because of his good behavior. By this time, a lot of the other followers had also been released from their institutions including his wife Maud, and she goes and joins him in Seattle as soon as he calls for her. Now, while he had been in jail, she did divorce him, but they end up remarrying on April 3rd. Edmund wrote to Ovi. He says, Hurt, God has resurrected me. I have now got my foot on your neck. God has restored me to my own. I will return to Oregon and gather together all of my followers. Place no obstruction in my way or God will smite you, Crafield. This asshole. (laughs) He pushes buttons. Oh boy, does he push buttons. Sarah, upon hearing that he's out and that he's calling for his followers again, she's like, you know what? I never lost my faith. And Edmund tells them all it's time to rebuild. We're going to do the island thing again because that was totally fun. And if my people don't show up, 
you all better watch out because I have talked to God and there's going to be some fucking wrath placed upon you if this does not happen specifically in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Corvallis. Plus it's peach season again and God damn it. <laughs> those trees got to somebody's got to pick them. Now, this is just the timing on this is incredible. So he's calling God's wrath. And April 18th of 1906 is when a massive earthquake strikes San Francisco. And so there you go. And they think, yep. Okay. So now their belief is strengthened in this douche canoe. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They are in it to win it once again. I mean, you've got Cora and Sophie Hartley. They're going. They're leaving behind husbands and children. Frank Hurt quits his job. He leaves. So does Donna Starr. She leaves behind their children. In the meantime, Esther had been relocated to Illinois while she was institutionalized. But she's also heading to this new Eden where Edmund says that he's rebuilding his flock. And she is just overjoyed after, you know, her sister tells her that she's still the virgin and that her duty is to bring forth the Christ and take up his work. Now, let's just take a moment. Let's talk about our most favorite thing in the world, the spiritualist movement. Because, of course, we can't go this long and talk about this time period without it being brought up. No, of course not. And for those of you who don't know about this, the spiritualist movement has followed us for many an episode. We've, we've been away from it for a while, but here we go. Always. Always. So now let's bring in a new character in the story. It's Esther's brother, George. They lost their mother in 1894, and he's got these sisters that are being defiled. But you know what? Good George here, he's on a mission from God too. And not just God, but from their mother. Because thanks to spiritualism, he's able to communicate with her. And he finds out that he's God's agent and the only person able to deliver up the spirit of Crefield. So he sets out on his journey of revenge. So mom has told him, you got to kill Edmund. Yep, because that's what happens when you talk to ghosts. They hire you as a hitman. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. They're up there with God. They know what's going on. I would probably believe that before I believe, you know, Captain Longdong over there. Exactly. No, agreed. Fair enough. I believe my mother before. Yeah. Now this time, the men that are being left behind their, by their wives, by their daughters, by their sisters, they're not having it. They're not as easygoing about it this time. Lewis Hartley, who is father of Sophie and husband to Cora, was especially done with this. He tries to catch them as they're getting on a train to go and meet up with Edmund. But they see that he's following them and they stop and get off and they end up walking the 50 miles left to meet with the rest of the Brides of Christ. Now, once Lewis realizes this, I mean, he is he's already angry, but now he's just beyond angry. He's heading into plan B. He's not just going to go and bring his wife and his daughter home. He goes and he buys a gun. and He's planning on murdering Edmund. So he goes to the shopkeeper, Mr. Ingalls. He purchases the gun. And he goes to the ferry where the group was boarding to cross the river to get to their new Eden Island place. He puts the gun up to Edmund's head and he fires five times without injuring him once. Uh, it's not because. Uh, <laughs> is he a bad shot? No, no, that's not what it is. The shopkeeper sold him the wrong cartridges on purpose because he knew why he was buying the gun. So now Edmund has called down God's wrath via an earthquake. And now he has survived <laughs> an assassination attempt. But, I mean, blanks have been known to injure and or kill people. So 
the fact, I mean, that is something else that he, five shots to the head Mm -hmm. at point blank range, even with blanks. Holy moly. They are now even more encouraged to believe that Edmund is indeed God's elite. And Edmund believes that he's pretty much untouchable at this point. And he instructs all of his believers that should someone succeed in killing him, that they were to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Okay. Okay. Now. All right. (laughs) So his group travels to their new Eden, which actually ends up being a cave near a remote and nearly inaccessible beach by Cape Perpetua. And it's not really great. It's not the place that they want to be. So Edmund's like, I'm going to go and just double check that there aren't better places for us to go and live in. But you guys should totally stay here at this beach cave and wait for me. Except for Maud. He's like, you should go to Seattle and I'm going to meet you there. In the meantime, there are some other family members who are out for revenge. Another father even meets up with George while they're searching trains for Edmund. And he knows that Mitchell is planning on killing Edmund. And this dad, he's all like, hey, George, you're young. You're 23. I'm old. I've got, I've already raised my kids. Let me do this honor killing instead of you because you're so young. You've got your whole life ahead of you. But George is like, no, I'm on a mission from God and I got this. So George is searching trains. He ends up spotting Maud while she's traveling and he follows her to Seattle. He ends up meeting with a few other connections because he does lose track of her, but no one can really pinpoint where Edmund is. On May 7th, George is walking near First and Cherry Streets in Seattle when he sees Maud and Edmund shopping. He waits as they go into a pharmacy and then steps up behind them and shoots Edmund, killing him right there on the spot. Now Maud, she loses it. I mean, this happens right next to her on the street. And she looks up at people and she's, she's telling them he can't die. He can never die. The doctor, Emil Boris, shows up at the scene. He lifts her up and he's hearing her say Josh. And he's thinking that she's like implying it's a joke. And he goes, Madam, this is no Josh. This man is dead. No, that's his name. Edmund Joshua Elijah. (laughs) So yeah, this is no Josh. This man is dead. And George, he's hanging out, smoking a cigar, just waiting to be arrested. He gives no fucks. He's just like, I did it. And then reporters end up talking to him while he's in jail. And he says that he's nervous because he's not used to so much tension. It has nothing to do with the murder. He says, quote, I am, of course, sorry that I have been called upon to take any man's life, but there is no one among you who can appreciate my feelings. No brother could love his sisters any more than I. They were good Christian girls until this man came along. They believed in him and thought he was a godly man, in spite of the fact that he has ruined them and disgraced the rest of us. I tried to make them see it like we and everybody else saw it, but it was no use as long as he was around. Well, he ain't around now. It was willed that I meet him today, and Crefield suffered the end that he was entitled to. And then George requests that they send a telegram to O.V. He says, I got my man. I'm in jail here. George. O.V. responds saying, I feel a less violent way of dealing with the man would have been a blessing. And he was one of the few fathers who was not running around trying to get revenge, trying to murder him. O.V. actually says, I will spend the last dollar I have in the world to defend George Mitchell if necessary. Aww. Yeah. But then on top of that, his daughter, Maud, is the widow. So not only does he decide that he's going to help defend George Mitchell, but he's like, I can't just leave my daughter out in the world like this. And he leaves money at the hotel that she's staying at so that she can be taken care of as well. 
he did offer to help to support George Mitchell's defense, but he didn't need to. A lot of the citizens back in Corvallis decided to collect funds for his court fees. And it wasn't even just Corvallis. It was actually people across the country who had become familiar with the story because it was so sensational. Maud firmly believed that Edmund would be resurrected, and she didn't cry at his funeral. She had him wrapped up in a shroud. There was no religious service given. And then she returned to the cemetery on the day that he was supposed to rise. When she found that the grave was undisturbed, she just says, I've got a message from Joshua telling me not to worry no more about that poor old earthly body of his. She said that her husband had previously told her that he might actually return in spirit, not in body. So at least she had that. Now the rest of the group, the Brides of Christ, they're all still chilling on that beach, in that cave, eating whatever crabs and mussels and clams that they could pick up around them. And it's not until this guy on a boat comes across them and he lets them know that Creffield is dead. And at first they don't believe it. (laughs) How long had this been? Do you know? A good month. Had to have been a good month. Yeah. I mean, it's at least a few weeks. Yeah. Because he has them all gather in April and then it's May that he is killed. And who knows how long it took for it to actually reach them. Unbelievable. Yeah. So they're like, nope. He told us to stay here until he comes back, and that's what we're going to do. Now, this boat captain, he's like, all right, I got to get some help to get these people out of here because they are not going to make it. And most of the people nearby in the towns turned him down because they knew who the Holy Rollers were, and they wanted nothing to do with them. I love it so much. I love it so much. But then he gets in touch with good old O.V., and he gets these people to safety. He even brings a lot of them back into his own home. So, in the meantime, we've got George Mitchell, who's on trial for Edmund's murder. And the defense claims its sanity due to everything that had happened to his family. And they lay out the details of the free love that was practiced. But I mean, this time, so I gather this is how we know all of the detail that wasn't in the first trial, right? Yes. And, you know, I mean, the defense had found out all this information. And they were like, well, we don't really know if we're going to be able to present all of this. Because the prosecution was so determined to not let them have the insanity defense. So the defense attorney, very smartly, just laid it all out in his opening statement. He didn't even get a chance, you know, he was not leaving it up to chance that they would have to rely on witnesses. He just was like, this is what happened. Here you go. So now everybody's hearing all about the free love, all about the orgies. Some of the brides, they actually testify against him, including his sister. But then O.V. goes on the stand in his defense. There's a lot of back and forth within this trial. I'm not going to get into all the details. But after 85 minutes of deliberation, he is found not guilty. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with this. I'm okay with it. Yeah. So the family now is kind of trying to reconcile. I mean, they've been through a lot. And they're trying to convince Esther to go back to Illinois with their father, but she refuses. She catches sight of George within the vicinity and she's like, I'm out. Bye, bitches. But then another day goes by, and he's going to head back to Oregon. She comes along to say goodbye. She's very, very curt, doesn't have a whole lot to say, but everyone's like, oh, breathing a sigh of relief, thinking maybe we can reconcile after everything. Maybe this is all okay. So it seems that she's seeing him off, maybe somewhat forgiven, until he turns to head into the waiting area for the train, and she pulls a revolver from beneath her coat and shoots him, killing him right there at the train station. No! Yep. I did not see this coming. Whoa. Whoa. 
Now, she is completely composed as she's brought through the crowd and she's taken to the police station. She looks right at the police chief and says, I killed him because he killed Joshua. We were commanded to do it. Turns out the murder was planned out with Maud and possibly his other sister, Donna Starr. So they do eventually bring in Maud, and she straight up says, I'm not going to bother pleading insanity. She says, quote, I will not admit that I'm crazy, for I am not. I don't care what comes now. And Esther also says that she's not going to plead insanity. But her brother and Maud's brother, Frank, plead insanity on their behalfs. They get a whole bunch of witnesses basically saying that these women were easily influenced, that, you know, they were part of this group and they were forced into all these things. And they are found insane. And there's lots of plans to send them back to Oregon. But before any of that could be settled, Maud dies in jail. At first, it's believed that it's possibly from heart failure. But when they do an autopsy, they end up finding out that she committed suicide by strychnine poisoning. Now, Esther, she does end up in an asylum. And after Maud's death, O.V., again, like I said, the saint of the story, he has Edmund exhumed and has Maud and Edmund buried side by side. He even has a tombstone that says Maud, wife of Edmund Crawfield. I feel like, and he said, I'm sorry, I got to interrupt. OV's kind of on my nerves now. <laughs> <laughs> he's a, uh, he's, he's. He's too forgiving. Enough is enough, OV. <laughs> he just loved him. He loved him unconditionally. He says of his daughter, the mistakes she made were innocent ones, which, hmm. Yeah, I- I'm with you on that at that point. It's like, okay, buddy. No, she was she was fruity as a nutcake. Don't misunderstand me. It's the whole exhuming and burying and all that stuff. Just bury her in the family plot and let him be worm food somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of, I was really surprised when I came across that detail. I was like, holy shit. Okay, then. As far as all of the other followers, a lot of them went on with their lives after all of this. Some of them reconciled, some of them moved on and married, they had other children. O.V. and his family moved, and he eventually died in 1943, and Sarah died in 1946. Now Esther, she recovered physically and mentally while she was at the asylum, and in 1909 she was granted parole, as long as O.V. was her guardian. And that worked out, she stayed with them until 1914, when she was declared sane enough to have parole lifted. And in August of 1914, she also committed suicide using strychnine. And that's, that's the end. That is what happened to the Holy Rollers. That's what happened to Edmund with his 13-inch dong. It was a lot. That's what they said. <laughs> it is. I would imagine. My God. Well, they were all, I mean, you want to talk about a shared delusion, but to the extent that it went i mean i think they were emotionally disturbed anyway yeah it just yeah i mean they're all as i said in the very beginning they had all been very religious to start off with a lot of them were already in the salvation army so they already had these specific ideas of what religion was and what it could be and then he comes in starts with all this and he's got them exhausted he's got them sleep deprived He's got them starving and cold and, you know, you break somebody down and then you build them back up and he built them the way that he wanted them. Well, now Tiff is going to regale us with her tale of her encounter with a cult in college. And at some point, that'll be a bonus clip on our YouTube channel. It's linked in various places or you can just search for us. And there's other bonus clips, too, for your enjoyment in the meantime. 
And we'll link you directly in a blog post whenever it goes up. So that's what this little gap's going to be. You'll probably hear the SpongeBob guy, I imagine. And then we'll be back. A few minutes later. All right, so that's Colts Part 1. We hope you enjoyed. And like we say, keep listening so you'll hear how to find us on social media and how to contact us. And what do we say, Tiff? This is where the catchphrase goes. All right, we'll see you in Part 2. Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTUPodcast and on Instagram at youtotallymadethatup. Feel free to contact us on those platforms, and you can also email us. That address is youtotallymadethatup at gmail.com.